Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border, and welcome to the part two of the Mir and the Last Soviet Citizen episode series, because um, we thought this was going to one episode, but, uh, well, it's long. That's why we're publishing this in two parts, so that you wouldn't have to listen for a hour and a half or something. Still, I hope that you will enjoy the show, and don't remember to mail us at whatever your questions have at theeasternborder.gmail.com, and please please do like us at our Facebook page and our Twitter. Twitter is at Eastern underscore border, and Facebook is just, well, the Eastern border. And like us on Patreon, and we will continue making the show. At any rate, enjoy, and I hope that we'll get back to normal very soon. Thank you. So, let's talk about what Mir really consisted from, and uh, its modules, because it's a really interesting kind of technical information. And I'm pretty sure that, well, most of this episode is going to be interesting for people who work as engineers or, well, aspire to or something. But um, for all of you military or ex-military guys out there, which uh, unsurprisingly make the most of uh, my audience, about 43% according to the survey data that's on my webpage, yeah, I hope this is fun for you as well. Anyhow, the Mir base block, which is the core module, evolved from the earlier Soviet Salyut to serve as the heart of the space station. Launched in February 1986, the 13.1 meter long, and uh, yeah, well, I'm using metric here because now I'm delving into the Soviet data, 20.4 metric ton core contained the primarily living and working area on life support and power, as well as the main computer, communications, and control equipment. All in 90 cubic meters of habitable volume. Mir's environment is generally maintained at temperatures from 64 Fahrenheit to 84 Fahrenheit, and I have no clue why the Russians would include Fahrenheit, because I guess they just copied it from some NASA's data, but seriously, if you're talking in meters, then please do Celsius, because Celsius, and that's just my opinion, makes so much more sense than Fahrenheit. Anyhow, it also had a humidity of 20 to um, 70%, which is um, a lot of humidity if you think in averages. The core had four main components. 
The working compartment was actually two cylinders connected by a conical section. It provided operations and living areas. Operations included monitoring, command, and scientific activities. The living area provided necessities for long-duration missions, including a galley with a table, cooking elements, trash storage, a bicycle exerciser, and a treadmill with medical monitoring equipment. Kind of like you'd seen Rocky IV, except, well, more advanced, because at that time, well, they could only have that in space stations. They also had video equipment and individual crew areas, each with a porthole, hinged chair, and sleeping bag. The personal hygiene area, with toilet and sink, was located in one end of the working compartment. Mir had several portholes with shutters outside to protect them from orbital debris impacts. Two television screens permitted face-to-face -face communications with the ground. Four more television screens monitored the outer Mir modules. The transfer compartment was a spherical structure at the front end of Mir, providing one end docking port for visiting spacecraft, plus four radial berthing ports, set in a 90-degree arrangement, for access to station's added modules. An approaching module used the course, uh, which is the course, obviously, but still, just to explain, really, automating docking system to dock with a forward port. Crews could then use the module's manipulator arm system to move it to a radial port, thus freeing the forward port for future use. The transfer compartment had no simulated up-and-down indicators, it was an area of Mir where astronauts reported sensations of disorientation. The non-pressurized assembly compartment on the other end of the base block contained the station's main engine and fuel tanks. It supported antennas, lights and optical sensors. The pressurized intermediate compartment tunneled through the assembly compartment to connect with the working compartment to the aft docking port, where the Quant-1, uh, Quant is Quantum, obviously, module was permanently docked. When Quant-1 was docked permanently to Mir's air aft docking port in April 1987, it increased Mir's usable volume and expanded its scientific capabilities. Quant-1 supported research in the physics of galaxies, quasars and neutron stars by measuring electromagnetic emissions. The module also supported biotechnology experiments and had some station control and life support functions. The 11 metric ton Quant-1 measured 4.4 meters by 6.3 meters long with 40 cubic meters of pressurized volume. The module was equipped with six gyrodynes that provided accurate pointing of the station and significantly reduced the amount of fuel used for altitude control. Its aft docking port was available for Soyuz and Progress vehicles. Progress, by the way, still used today. Quant 2 was a scientific and airlock module providing biological research, Earth observations, and extravehicular activity capabilities. The Quant 2 enhanced Mir with drinking water and oxygen provisions, motion control systems and power distribution, as well as shower and washing facilities, because before Quant 2 was attached, yeah, they really had no way to shower inside and wash themselves inside the spacecraft, which provided to be a major issue. You know, the smell and everything. Its airlock contained a self-sustained cosmonaut maneuvering a unit that increased the range and complexity of extravehicular activity tasks. The 19.6 metric ton Quant 2 measured 4.4 meters by 13.7 meters long, with 61.3 cubic meters of volume and 27.4 meters of solar arrays. It was the first module equipped with the Lyapa manipulator arm used to move the modules after they docked with Mir. The Quant-2 docked with Mir in November 1989, which is extremely close to the collapse. And then was the module Crystal. This module supported biological and materials production technologies in the microgravity environment. These included semiconductors, cellular substances and medicines. Crystal also supported astrophysical and technical experiments. It had a radio docking, it had a radio docking port, originally designed as a means of docking the Russian space shuttle, 
Russian shuttle-type orbiter Buran, basically, and was used for the first STS-71 docking in 1995. Added in to June 1990, the 19.6 metric ton crystal, measured 4.4 meters by 13 meters long, with 60.8 cubic meters of volume and 36 meters of solar arrays. Spectre allowed for better investigations and monitoring of Earth's natural resources and atmosphere. Spectre also supported research into biotechnology, life sciences, materials science, and space technologies. American astronauts sometimes used Spectre as their living quarters. Launched in May 1995, during Norm Thograd's mission to Mir, Spectre carried more than 1,600 pounds of United States equipment, mainly for biomedical research. Included with its arrival were two pairs of solar arrays to boost power to the station and a Ljapa, Ljapa literally meaning paw, manipulator arm to assist in moving the modules on Mir. The 19.3 metric ton Spectre module measured 14.4 meters by 4.4 meters with a pressurized volume of 62 cubic meters and had four solar arrays. On June 25, 1987, an uncrewed Progress resupply vehicle collided with the Spectre module, causing solar array and hull damage and depressurization. The Mir crew closed the hatch to the leaking Spectre, providing further pressure loss on board Mir. Priroda, which means nature, by the way, and this, this module's main purpose was Earth remote sensing, uh, including the weather. The ocean atmosphere system, land, mineral, and crop conditions, and humankind's impacts and opportunities in the environment. Priroda also collected information from remote sensor buoys in nuclear power, seismic activity, and other areas to create an integrated monitoring and warning system. Launched in April 1996, Priroda, the last of the Mir modules, arrived during Shannon Lucid's stay on Mir. The 19.7 metric ton Priroda measured 4 by 4.4 meters by 12 meters long and had a pressurized volume of 66 cubic meters. The unmanned automated progress was derived from the Soyuz crew transfer vehicle. This is the kind of resupply ship, which crashed in 1987 into the Mir station. It was designed to resupply and refuel the Russian Salyut and Mir space stations. A progress typically approached and docked automatically at Mir's off-docking port using the Kurs, Kurs system. During shuttle, Mir progress vehicles supplied Mir once about every two months. They also were used for the International Space Station after Mir had deorbited. Like the Soyuz, the Progress fighter measured about 7 meters long by 2.7 meters wide. It had 6.6 cubic meters of volume and carried about 2,400 kilograms of cargo. Basically, a kilogram is uh, two and a half pounds or something. So yeah, just you know, if you if you're more used to pounds, then just well, 2,400 kilograms of cargo. Well, multiply that by 2.5 and you'll get the pound value. The refueling compartment of the Progress was replaced with a non-pressurized cargo compartment to enable the transport of materials to be used on the outside of Mir. Progress was also designed to carry small satellites, which could be released by the Mir crew. After being loaded with trash, waste and other unnecessary items, a Progress undocked and deorbited to burn upon re-entry over the Pacific Ocean. Early in the Soviet space station program, crews always got into their Soyuz descendant vehicles as a manually guided progress approached in case of an accident. This practice was discontinued after successes increased confidence, which obviously led to the crash of 1997. The Russian-built docking module was delivered by STS-74 on November 14, 1995. Attached to the Kristall, 
the docking module provided the clearance for the shuttle to dock easily with Mir without interference from the station's solar panels. The docking module featured a pressured sealed body and an androgenous peripheral docking system, and I'm really getting tired by these technical terms, which was compatible with crystal and shuttle orbiter docking systems. The shuttle orbital locking systems was an external airlock extension, and I really hate those technical terms at this point. It was fitted to the forward payload bay bulkhead, which is uh, still a thing that I don't get, but every source calls it the payload bay bulkhead, and I have no idea what it even is. Maybe someone can explain in the comments, in Facebook or Twitter or our homepage, but yeah, well, I deal with the sources that I can get. Anyway, this was accessible by the crew via the mid-deck airlock. When docked, the uh, ADPS, that's the short for the whole the thing that I don't understand, provided locking, structural shiftness, and an airtight seal between the two structures. The DM, the docking module, was 4.7 meters long from tip to tip of the identical ADPS on the other end. Uh, don't ask me, please. Its diameter was 2.2 meters and it weighed approximately 4.1 metric tons. The module carried to the Mir two solar arrays, one Russian and one jointly developed by the United States, and Russia to augment Mir's power supply. The DM carried the arrays redacted and stowed to be later deployed by cosmonauts. Electrical power in the spacecraft can be produced in many ways, for example, from batteries or by nuclear and chemical fuel cells or by solar cell arrays. Solar panels provided most of the power on Mir, and the station sometimes appeared as if it were, quote, more panel than module, end quote. Nevertheless, as one Russian engineer put it, quote, we never managed to get rid of our energy hunger, end quote. Whenever the station lost altitude control or attitude control, uh, for some reason, NASA website puts it as attitude control, while the Russians write it as altitude control, and I don't even know what attitude control could probably mean, you know, in the context of talking about spacecraft. But yeah, due to the computer or gyrodyne failures, restoring solar power generation was usually the main concern, because almost all the other systems, well, yeah, they uh, really hardcore depended on that stuff. And well, probably let's talk about the... Stuff that brought everything up in the orbit, and now I have to talk about Soyuz. And if you know that uh, the USSR literally means Soyuz Sovietskich Socialistich Respublik. As you know, Soyuz, or Soviet, literally means union. A Soviet is a council, and, so, and at the same time, Soyuz also means union. So it's kind of the craft that they use to basically connect the things. And obviously this refers both to the USSR and to the uniting of spacecraft. Uh, yes, Russian language is a bit complex, but hey, you probably know this by now. The Soyuz TM spacecraft was typically ferried three crew members uh, to and from Mir. It remained docked with Mir to be available as an escape vehicle in case of emergency and was sometimes used to make fly-around inspections of the station. The Soyuz has launched in greater numbers than any other spacecraft in history, providing access to space for more than 30 years. Soyuz TM has a mass of 7.2 metric tons, a length of 7 meters, a maximum diameter of 2.7 meters, and a pressurized volume of 11 cubic meters. The spacecraft consists of three main sections, an orbital module that contains life support, rendezvous, and docking systems, and also served as a crew habitat during non-dynamic flight phases, and I don't know what even that means, but hey, maybe again someone can inform me on that, because I'm talking about this space station Mir, and using a lot of complex data, which I had to Google Translate from Russian to even understand what was going on, and I still don't, so maybe I'm just telling you something wrong when it comes to extra technical data, but... Please, please, if you're up. Hey, if someone who's an ex-astronaut or cosmonaut listens to this, 
please feel free to fix me on it, as um, a bit at a loss here, we're not talking about Yatagan, the differences from drapiers here, we're talking about spaceship details, so I get something wrong. But now, it also contains instrument assembly module, a cylindrical shell that has the orbital flight systems, and a descent module containing the Soyuz main systems control station. And is the area where the crew stays during launch and where they could conduct orbital maneuvers, rendezvous and docking and descent. Two solar arrays, 10.6 meters span, provided the vehicle's electrical power and could be interconnected with the meters electrical system to furnish an additional 1.3 kilowatts, which is quite a lot. Typically, the journey from the Baikonur launch site to Mir took 50 hours. 50 Transporting crews and cargo to and from the Russian space station, the Soyuz docked on the axial port on the transfer compartment of the core module. Probe and drogue devices were used to make the Soyuz with Mir, and I have no idea what are those probe and drogue devices, but that's what the translation gives to me. This is the probing rod located on the Soyuz, and it entered the receiving cone located on the space station. After capture, an electric drive redacted the probe and pulled the two parts of the docking mechanism together. Hooks secured the two assemblies around the docking interface seal. When docking was completed, hatches were opened and the crews began a handover period to exchange information and tasks. At the end of this duration, the departing crew left in the resident Soyuz. The replacement crew moved the Soyuz to another port to allow docking access for the next spacecraft. Because Soyuz had a limited life in space of 5-6 to six months, the rotation of vehicles guaranteed that the Mir crew members had transportation back to Earth. On its return trip, the Soyuz capsule deployed parachutes after re-entering the atmosphere and then fired braking rockets when it was just about the ground in Kazakhstan. Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on Patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Secrecy usually veiled the Soviet space program, as you might have known from our previous episodes, but the Soviets often used their space successes to promote an image of technological robustness to both their own citizens and the outside world. 
At times, detailed descriptions of space exploits and equipment were published, including this one, of an early Soyuz model, excerpted from the November 17, 1968 issue of Pravda, the truth, the Soviet newspaper. Quote, and this is going to be a, quite a long quote, because I'm literally translating the article. <clears throat> the Soyuz consists of the following main modules, the orbital module, a descent module, intended for putting crews into orbit and returning them to Earth, and a service module, which houses the engines. The orbital module is in the fore part of the ship and is connected with the descent capsule. The service module is placed behind the descent capsule. When the ship is being placed into orbit, it is protected against aerodynamic and thermal overloads by a nose fairing, which is jettisoned after the passage through the dense layers of the atmosphere. The cosmonaut's cabin is covered on the outside by a heat-resistant covering to protect it from intensive aerodynamic heating during descent to Earth. After the vehicle has been slowed down by the atmosphere in its descent from the orbit, the braking parachute opens, then the main parachute which is used for the landing opens after that. Directly before landing, at a height of about 1 meter above Earth, the solid fuel braking engines of the soft landing system are switched on. In the service module, a hermetically sealed container carries the equipment for the thermoregulation system, the system of unified electric power supply, the equipment for long-range radio communications and radio telemetry, and instruments for the system of orientation and control. The non-pressurized part of the service module contains the liquid fuel propulsion installation system that it's used for maneuvering in orbit and for the send back to Earth. The installation has two engines, the main one and the spare one. The ship has a system of low-thrust engines for orientation. The sensors for the orientation systems are located outside the service module. Mounted on the service module are the solar arrays. To ensure that the solar arrays are constantly illuminated, they are oriented towards the sun by rotating the ship. The spaceship is equipped with an automatic docking system. The onboard systems of the ship may be controlled either by the cosmonaut from the control panel or by an autopilot. The ship's equipment allows for the craft to be piloted, quite independently, of ground control. End quote. This is where uh, I want to end with the technical details, because I've found a nice little article about the lost cosmonaut ever and the lost Soviet citizen, which is quite important, because so far I've been bothering you by all the technical details and everything, but um, my show is known for its human stories. And, of course, I had to bring one in here. Now just picture something in your head. Just visualize it if you can. Visualize two cosmonauts. They're stepping off a bus at the Baikonur Cosmodrome, which is where the Soviets did everything. And they're ready to ride this basically 10-story height Soyuz rocket into orbit. This launch complex in the heart of Kazakhstan had sent the first satellite and an animal and human Sputnik, Laika, and Yuri Gagarin into space. And by the way, Laika is literally used in the Russian language to refer to huskies. And I don't know why, but I truly believe that it's because of Laika, because now all the Siberian huskies and Alaskan huskies are called Laikas because of the dog. Like, they literally just started to use this one name for the whole species of dogs because of how Laika was sent into space. It was the spring of 1981, Three decades after Gagarin's historic flight and Sergei Kirkalev and Anatoly Anserbaski were there to follow in his footsteps. But first they kept up the tradition Gagarin had started back in 1961. Yeah, the men marched to the right rear tide of the bus, unzipped their space suits and started pissing. Then they headed for the launch pad. You always have to take a piss before you go to the launch pad. That was a proud Soviet tradition. 
which is a bit crazy and weird, but uh, what can you do? To the world, space travel had become routine. American astronauts had flown dozens of space shuttle missions, and Soviet cosmonauts were building ever more complex space stations, culminating with Mir. Arsebarsky and Kirlyayev's destination. Few eyes glanced skyward that day. Nor would they in the months ahead. Events on Earth would soon distract the world and set a new course for manned space flight that continues up until today. And I'm talking slower here because, well, technical data just isn't that fun. This part, however, is. After blasting off from Baikonur, Kirkalev wouldn't inhale earthly air for 312 days. In that time, the soft-spoken cosmonaut would watch his country crumble from 200 miles up. Presidents would change, his hometown of Leningrad would become St. Petersburg, and one communist superpower would splinter into 15 nations, one of which is my homeland of Latvia. By the time he returned, Krikalev would be, in essence, the last remaining citizen of the once mighty and powerful and oppressive and dangerous Soviet Union. But out of the chaos, NASA's current trajectory also emerged. After the Soviet Union collapsed, American politicians began working with Russia, hoping to take astronauts back into orbit with the space station and eventually to the Moon and Mars. We still haven't gone back to the Moon, nor we have gone to Mars, but hopes are up, because, well, I'm truly a space nerd. Well, what did you expect? The international plan put a cosmonaut, Krikalev, on the space shuttle and an astronaut on Mir, which ultimately led to one of the highest profile international collaborations of all time, the International Space Station. Because before, we've talked about the technical data, and I want to get into more personal stuff right now. Unlike a garden, Kriaklyev was no folk hero. Most of us, in the post-Soviet sphere, didn't know his name and many still don't. The famously humble cosmonaut didn't get political and doesn't see the limelight at all. And, uh, well, he wasn't available uh, for comments or interviews, even though I tried to message him. But by his late 20s, he was already an impressive pilot and a member of the Soviet Union's national aerobatics team. When the Soviets lost contact with the Salyut 7 space station in 1985, Krikalev was on the ground control team that planned the audacious in-orbit rescue mission. That role helped win the young pilot his cosmonaut wings the next year. And by 1988, he had already completed his first flight, a mission to the new Mir station. Helen Sharman, the first Briton in space, launched with Aserbaski and Krylaklev from Baikonur on May 18, 1991, Krikalev's second trip. Well, she remembers the cosmonaut as cool under pressure. As their spacecraft approached Mir, the targeting system failed. Her heart raced, knowing that a miss could be deadly. But Krikalev's aim was flawless even without the rendezvous guidance, and they boarded Mir without issue joining an existing crew. And here's a quote from her. He always said when he got into the space station, he felt like he was going home. Charman later said in interviews, He loved the feeling of weightlessness and learned to fly like a bird from one side of the space station to the other without touching down. A rare feat. Most cosmonauts read to pass the time, but Krikalev and his crew spent their free hours looking out the window. Every spare moment we tried to look at the Earth, Krikalev told the media. He'd search the planet for places he'd been or heard about, after a scant eight days in orbit, Charmant went home with the two-member crew already on board, leaving Krikalev and Arsterbaski alone. The pair had a five-month mission packed with six spacewalks outside the station for upgrades and repairs. But, even from this vantage point, Krikalev had no way of seeing what was unfolding in his communist homeland, or how it would change his time abroad Mir. 
By summer, the USSR president, our good old friend Gorby, Mikhail Gorbachev, and his policy of loosening control over the Soviet states had led many of them to push for independence, including my own Latvia, together with Lithuania, Estonia, and many others. One of those states, by the way, was Kazakhstan, home of the Baikonur Cosmodrome. To appease the government, Moscow's leaders offered a spot-on Mir to a Kazakh cosmonaut, taking the place of the more experienced cosmonaut who would have relieved Krikalev. As a result, Krikalev would have to remain in space until further notice. Those initial five months now stretched out indefinitely, despite the risks to his health. The effects of long-term spaceflight aren't fully understood even today, but the cosmonaut faced, at minimum, an increased risk of cancer, cataracts, nasal congestion, muscle atrophy, bone loss, infection, and even immune system deficiency. Krikalev knew the dangers, and he later shared his concerns with the media. Do I have enough strength, he asked himself? Will I be able to readjust for this longer stay to complete the program? Naturally, at one point I had my doubts. End quote. August 19, 1981. As dawn broke, tanks rolled into Moscow's Red Square. A coup d'etat was underway. Gorbachev, on vacation at the time, had frustrated hardliners with his reform attempts. Communist party leaders were determined to restore power. On Mir, as on Earth, details were hard to come by. An official announcement claimed Gorbachev had stepped aside voluntarily for health reasons, but many citizens took the streets to protest the coup. For us, it was totally unexpected, Krikalev later said. We didn't understand what happened. When we discussed this, we tried to grasp how it would affect the space program. Gorbachev recovered power within days, but the country's fate was sealed. Over the coming weeks and months, the Soviet states declared independence one at a time. During that time, Krikalev got semi-regular calls from his wife Yelena, who worked in mission control. The pair had gotten to know each other over the radio on his previous mission to Mir. This time they had a nine-month-old daughter. As the political turmoil caused prices to surge at home, Krikalev wondered how his family was surviving with his meager pay of just a few dollars a month, a result of communist ethos and inflation. It was about $12 a month, by the way. Yeah, a cosmonaut at 1990s was paid about 10 to $12 per month. A cosmonaut. Let that sink in, okay? We're tougher. But we were really poor. And, well... If I was rich, I wouldn't be asking you for the help at the beginning, really. But, quote from him, and from his wife, I tried never to talk about unpleasant things because it must have been hard for him, Yilin later told the documentary film crew. As far as I can make out, Sergei was doing the same thing. October 2, 1981. As Krikalev's original state neared its close, a new team of three cosmonauts joined the Mir crew. None had the flight experience to replace him, but at least Austrian Franz Wiebock was packing lemons for the stranded cosmonaut. He found them at a tourist shop for Westerners. Then, after just a week, the Austrian returned home, taking Astrobaski of the new three cosmonauts back to Earth with him. The longer Krikalev stayed in orbit, the more scarce, now Russia's, not Soviet Union's, cash became. The collapsing country sold off the space station trips to Western governments to raise funds. There were even discussions about selling Mir itself, which made the crew wonder about their status as tenants. Quote, A human race sent its son of the stars to fulfill a concrete set of tasks, reported the Komsomolskaya Pravda, or the Communist Truth. But hardly he had left Earth that it lost interest in those tasks for worldly and completely inexplicable reasons. And it started to forget about its cosmonaut. It did not even fetch him back at the appointed time, again for completely worldly reasons. 
There was a Soyuz capsule Krikalev and his comrade, Ukrainian Alexander Volkov, could use for a hasty escape, but if they took the easy way out and left Mir, it could mean the end of the space station. And so they stayed. December 25th, 1981. A cold war and the Soviet Union ended on Christmas Day. And yet President George H.W. Bush was concerned. Quote, We stand tonight before a new world of hope and possibilities and hope for our children. A world which we could not have contemplated a few years ago, he told the nation in a Christmas speech. The challenge for us now is to engage these new states in sustaining the peace and building the more prosperous future. Bush was right to worry. In the former Soviet states, some of the world's greatest rocket scientists now struggle to feed their families. Countries like Iran, India and North Korea were eager for their services. American officials wanted to put Russians back to work in hopes of propping up the fragile democracy. Behind the scenes, the former rivals started crafting a deal that put American taxpayer dollars into Russian rocketry and spacecraft, keeping up operations in orbit. Krikalev was willing to sacrifice his own health and happiness for the same cause. They say it's tough for me, not really good for my health, he said, like a true Soviet. The strongest argument was economic because this allows them to save resources here, Krikalev said from orbit. They say it's tough for me. But now, the country is in such difficulty, the chance to save money must be the top priority. True Soviet person, really. Jeffrey Manber worked on the space commerce issues for the Reagan administration and later negotiated this contract for the first space tourist, Dennis Tito. Manber was soon the only American working on the Soviet space industry, and he eventually hand-delivered the first United States and Soviet space contract. There was a good deal of chaos, Manber recalls. There was a good deal of fear. Institutions were crumbling. No one knew what the future would bring. March 25, 1992. Finally, Krikalev got word that he would be replaced and could return to Earth. The last Soviet citizen, the last Soviet cosmonaut, landed near the city of Arkalik in the now independent Republic of Kazakhstan. Krikalev had circled the Earth some 5,000 times and seen as many sunrises and sunsets. In the decades to come, he'd log 803 total days in orbit. No one would spend more total time in space until his comrade Gennady Padlatka in 2015, and that was on purpose. Once back on the Earth, a group of four men helped Krikalev down from the Soyuz capsule. He was pale as flour and sweaty, like a lump of wet dough. One man fanned his face with a handkerchief. Another handed him hot broth. Fresh air and burning sunlight washed over his body, which was nestled beneath a fur coat. A blanket of fresh snow made it tough to walk. Quote, it was a very pleasant, in spite of the gravity we had to face, Krikalev recalled years later for the documentary crew. But psychologically the load was lifted. There was a moment. You couldn't call it euphoria, but it was very good. The enormous responsibility for managing Mir was no longer his. It would take weeks for Krikalev to feel normal back on the ground and months to recover fully. In his understanded way, Krikalev downplayed the significance of his trip down one back to Earth. His own people didn't know his name and face but many journalists would ask him about returning to a changed planet. What, surprised is, what surprises me the most, he mused to reporters, that at first the earth was dark and now it's white. Winter has come, and before it was summer. Now it's beginning to bloom again. That's the most impressive change you can see from space. June 17, 1992. Months after Krikalev's return, President Bush and Russian President at the time, Boris Yeltsin, met in Washington, D.C. and finalized the Shuttle Mir program which put cosmonauts on space shuttle and astronauts on Mir, pawing the way for the ISS. 
Krikalev returned to training almost immediately, traveling to America to prepare for his role as the shuttle's first Russian crew member in 1994, flying alongside, well, at that time, NASA Administrator Charles Bolden. After meeting, training and flying with Sergei, I had great hopes that the US-Russian relations in space would develop progressively and that one day Russians and Americans flying together with astronauts of other nations would become commonplace. Quote from Bolden. Not long after, the United States and Russia combined their orbiting laboratory efforts towards the ISS. But the Russians fell through on their funds, because of the default, leaving the United States to pick up the tab or risk dropping the project altogether. The Clinton administration thought it was worth the cost just to help prop up the fledgling country. The deal was done because of the collapse of the Soviet regime, says author and expert on the Soviet-Russian space James Orberg. Prior to that, there were institutional and cultural barriers. There were informational barriers. Zarya, built in Russia with American dollars, would become the ISS first module or major component. Krikalev and his shuttle were tasked with mating Zarya to Unity, the first American built module. With this new collaboration, the ISS was born, and Krikalev was back home in space. The International Space Station has now traveled 2.6 billion miles during its more than 100,000 orbits. That has nearly far enough to reach Neptune, the outermost planet. But since retiring the space shuttle in 2011, the Americans have paid Russia's space agency, Roscosmos, billions of dollars for rides into orbit, and most of them have been stolen. NASA's administrator, Charles Bolden, had hoped to end the dependence in 2017, two years later than planned, with private company SpaceX taking its first astronauts to the ISS, followed by Boeing the year after. But it only happened right now. In 2020, I mean, we all... We all looked at how SpaceX did things, but the article, which kind of allows you to remember things from the past, is not so hopeful. And I'll quote from the article. <clears throat> That's the thing. The Russia had been agreed to send American astronauts into space only up until 2018. That was extended, and, and this year, America launched its first home-built private spacecraft into space. And this is crazy, but we're still working together in a way. The ISS has become the critical two-hold in the future exploration of our solar system, Bolden stated. The way he sees it, NASA's endeavors in orbit teach us how to survive in deep space. Even though the aging station will likely outlive its useful lifespan by 2024, American companies hope to build its successor by mounting capsules to the ISS that could eventually serve as private space stations. So, here we are now. For Bolden's part, he sees a future space station as the foundation of the journey to Mars and beyond, and we all know that that's going to happen because Elon Musk wants to put people on Mars. And that's one of the weirdest things. I'm a huge fan of Elon Musk, and a lot of people, specifically on the left side of the political spectrum, and there's nothing wrong with being on the left side of the political spectrum, I just disagree with them sometimes, but not like I'm hostile, just that as long as they don't want to bring the USSR back and don't want to confiscate every good whatever, I think that... We need to have nice conversations about the politics, but right now we have the situation where I've been praising Elon Musk politically because he's one of my personal heroes, and, well, I truly hope that one day we'll bring him on the show because I would really want to talk about Cosmos and everything with Elon Musk. Yeah, it's it's weird because I've been called totally a kind of a bootlicker for supporting Elon Musk and all the space stuff, but, well... The true bootlickers are the people who, for some reason, want to bring back the USSR, who wouldn't even really get Korolev back into the orbit or something. And that's kind of it for this episode, but now you know about the Mir and about the last Soviet citizen 
that happened to be in space. Which is a bit crazy. But, well, seeing as I recorded this from my telephone and this is a bit long again, what can I do? At any rate, please do help us out and um, enjoy this episode and I hope that, well, I'll get more in the future and I still mourn my HMC Byzantium. Funny, isn't it? Anyhow, do свидания, товарищи, and see you next time. And I really hope that you liked this one. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart.